0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Culture and Compliance Chronicles, a podcast series focused on the behavioral science approach to risk management. I'm Amanda Rod, a litigation and enforcement partner and co-chair of Ropes and Grays Anti-Corruption and International Risk Practice. In part two of this three-part discussion, I'm once again joined by my colleague Rosemary Paul, a litigation and enforcement partner. As well as Miriam Hussein, Melissa Maya, and Katerina Wegman, who are all partners at EY. We've talked a fair amount amongst this group about the importance of culture and of understanding people and why people make the decisions that people make. Uh, but we haven't spent as much time talking about how do you actually do this. So how do you actually measure culture, how do you actually understand what the root cause of any particular issue may be. And so I'd like to turn to that and talk a little bit about the practical examples of how you accomplish the goals that I think we all agree are very important. First, why don't we start by thinking about how you measure culture and what are some of the tools for measuring culture. Rosemary, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think... It's, it's
2: always going to be an interesting discussion in terms of how to define, measure, and manage culture. Um, you know, culture is sort of by its very nature extremely difficult to measure. And this can be something that makes sort of leaders within industry very uncomfortable. You know, how can we manage something if we can't measure it very well? Um, having said that, there are some really innovative ways. This includes machine learning, anonymous survey results. Um, Linguistic analysis of emails, reviews by employees, etc., and all of this information can work together to help give firms a picture of what their culture looks like. It does have to be a combination of surveys and interviews, so that is the the, the sort of information based on what people say they do um, against sort of the information that can be um, that can help discover. What people are actually doing because um, surveys alone I don't think are sufficient because the way people describe their behavior and their belief about the way they behave can sometimes be at odds with um, the evidence that demonstrates what they
1: actually do in real life. In terms of the unreliability potentially of survey information another area in which it's unreliable is when you're asking people to describe issues in the past because there is a ton of research that shows that the way we remember the past is not as it happened. So if it led to a successful outcome, we remember it as a series of genius actions that we took that led to this big success. And if it was a failure, it was error and someone else's fault. So to entirely rely on asking direct questions, frankly, quite often where the correct answer is is obvious, um, is going to be of... Limited use, um, not necessarily because people are, are deliberately gaming the system that they can, but because simply the, the human mind doesn't doesn't work that way. So one of the approaches that I've seen uh, be successful is actually you talked about innovative approaches is a tool called SenseMaker, um, uh, and this tool enables employees to tell micro stories, and those stories are structured to to elicit a perspective around the part of the culture that the organisation is worried about. It might be decision-making. You have to identify what the what the issue is. And those stories are then gathered at scale. So you have qualitative information around narratives people are telling, but not with a directing question at a statistically significant scale. And the benefit of that is, A, it gives you feedback from the organisation, but also then those metrics can be used ongoing to uh, to measure the direction of travel of of the culture of the organisation,
0: I've seen that deployed um, through the NHS actually, and looking at how hospitals were managing um, their, their their intake and processing of patients, patient satisfaction, um, the you know the employee survey across the nurses um, to really not only you know identify where they could make their services better, but also drive improvements in their financials and in the sort of the feedback they were getting from their patient population as well. So it had a broader knock-on effect than, you know, in many parts of the business and across many objectives of the business they were running,
1: especially for an organization like the NHS with this myriad of complications. And arguably, some of the challenges come from at various stages in the evolution of the organization, having very sort of business process-oriented, linear processes, whereas it's not the reality of how, how the NHS operates. So mm. using SenseMaker to get that feedback from the legions of doctors and nurses and patients, in fact, um, really enabled the, the management to get a true sense of how the environment in which these individuals were operating in and what would make a difference to uh, to foster a positive culture. I know, for example, one of the areas, one of the questions that they asked was around hygiene, and they got patients. This was in Wales, and it was a project run by um, Professor Dave Snowden, who is the the creator of SenseMaker. Um, patients observing the nurses and doctors around various hygiene processes, and picking up issues in that way not because the doctors and nurses were being deliberately um, – deliberate oversight on their part, but because there are certain things that had faded into the background because it had been done in a certain way for so long. And just having a patient perspective made them salient again.
0: I was just thinking just in terms of practically, in in an environment where we're all working in a completely new way, all of our norms are disrupted, and – you know, pulling together, using something like that, and getting stories from a lot of people feels like, at, at the surface, it would take a lot of time and be really cumbersome. And I, and I wonder, you know, one of the opportunities I think organizations through this crisis have is to really focus on and, and measure their culture, not just now, but as we start to move into our new normal, and then even beyond all of that, to see how it's been affected or changed over time, and therefore how leadership teams and management in the organizations can redefine their strategies and ways of working going forward, which many are coming out of the immediate urgency of the crisis response, now starting to think, how do we get back to the new normal? What will the new normal be? Are you seeing anybody Actually, using some of these as part, these techniques or or tools as part of this crisis response. One thing that I'm seeing is a
1: um, an exercise, but it's it's not just one organisation; it's pan organisational, which is to um, in a structured way to get leadership to capture the basis on which they're making decisions right now. Um, And the purpose of that is for that to be a collective learning tool. once all those stories are gathered at a scale post-crisis for what innovations came out how decisions were made so the intent of that is to create a feedback loop and it's a it's a major project that's been funded through the eu they can keep the benefits
0: the crisis did create and try to try to maintain those dynamics in a post-crisis stage and in
1: particular given the innovation that this is driving because of the yeah. new practices yeah. behaviors and that that, are, that would actually can drive a lot of
0: learning and innovation to potentially build a new future. conversations I've been having with heads of internal audit have been around how much assurance can we really provide if if all of our audits over the next two quarters are done, you know, fully virtual or fully remote. You know, mm-hmm. will we be able to provide that same level of assurance and what does the new assurance look like? And this contemplation of looking at the assessment of culture, the culture of the leadership team, um, to form part of that assurance. So whilst they may not feel they have as much ability to, you know, look into the supporting documentation or go into the deep underlying information and have a face-to-face conversation with management, there's other ways that they can supplement their work using, you know, cultural metrics to give audit committees or leadership teams assurance that the the management teams are driving the business in the
3: right way. Yeah, I wonder, Melissa. Just to your point, uh, what role um, big data could play as well? So I think we see a huge trend also um, in in using uh, not only people analytics within an organization or embedded controls to. Um, monitor certain risk groups um, in an organization as part of uh, the assurance uh, services that need to be uh, provided to organizations. But I think in addition to that, so how can we use data points that go beyond perception? So I wonder if that could be also um, a complementary approach um, to look into data points that we haven't considered in the past that could be proxies for some of the things that, that you have just shared as part of your work. Um, so I wonder if HR data in general could be a good indication or early warning signal uh, for certain risks in countries that you might not be able to visit as part of an internal audit process. Um, so I think that's where, where we can see a lot of um, our clients moving um, and I think it's also um a whole collective action movement um happening right now where we can see regulators moving also beyond perception um and where we see also that uh, organizations um, are complementing some of their survey data with um with other data points.
0: I completely agree with the point that you should be using both data and people and really combining the two and and the only trouble, I think, and it's, it's really a challenge that I think that it can be overcome, is sometimes I think there's so much data out there that people feel overwhelmed and don't know where to start. So everybody agrees, yes, data is a crucial piece of information but then everybody spends so much time trying to find the perfect data set and worrying about whether or not you're looking at the right data set, you're looking at enough data, what, how do you interpret it, what do you do with it, and people spend a lot of time getting really tied up in those decisions. And especially right now where we have the opportunity to try new and different ways of thinking about some of these issues, The message I'd like to send and that I've seen work really well for some clients is just start small, start somewhere, because it's going to change, right? As long as you take a data set, know what you're looking at, follow up on it with conversations with people and really trying to understand with people what the data actually means, then that's going to tell you something. And whether you tweak that slightly for the next round uh, or expand that, that's fine, but it, it shouldn't be stopping us from looking at the information that we have readily available to us right now.
1: I strongly agree with you, Amanda, because I actually think context-free data is dangerous. So that starting small, looking at your own data, and then once you've got the metrics trying to understand what they mean is really important. Sometimes I think what happens is, as you said, there are so many pieces of data and get lost in analysis. And then you end up with a set of metrics, which is then – climbed up the organization, has gone up to board level, and almost people are, are coming up with hypotheses and stories about what this data means without having actually looked at the reality and talked to enough people at an early stage to understand the organizational context that gives that data meaning for them so that they can understand the significance and take the right actions. Um, data analysis, for the sake of data analysis, I think sometimes it, it is done and it's actually dangerous. I I totally agree with you, and this is one of the
2: critiques about sort of data analysis in this context, that sort of codifying, and quantifying can sometimes give a a false sense of assurance, Um, and Mm. it sort of cosmetically makes things appear rational and objective and predictable when, in fact, things are, are far more complex and, you know, talking to people and sort of Ensuring
1: that your metrics are representative is crucial. Very simple cause and effect. You turn this lever and this happens. Exactly. Which yeah, which
0: creates it. this interesting dynamic we're seeing where a lot of work is done around measuring culture and then it gets locked down and not shared because people are nervous about how it could mm-hmm. be interpreted or how it could be used. And it ends up becoming sort of a secret project um, in a number of organizations. Which, equally, I think is sort of counterintuitive to the reason for doing it in the first place.
3: Yeah, I think your observations are almost symptomatic for what we see in the work around um, cultural metrics, because um, we always tend to focus on what's easy or what we what we believe is, um, is is easy to do or is giving us a sense of control, as opposed to at least going down that path. I, I really um, love what you said, Amanda, around at least it's a small piece that, that we can accomplish or going down that road and, and going on that journey. And I think that's what I wanted to emphasize. I think the idea is really to bring different disciplines together and acknowledge the fact that this is not about an absolute number of um, my cultural index is 1.3, or in this and that country, it has been going up for 3 or 4%. Um, I think when we talk about culture, we we cannot emphasize enough that we are talking about a complex and dynamic social system for which we need to get an understanding. And I think uh, to acknowledge that takes a real paradigm shift where um, the the whole idea around that you can control it um, needs to be broken down. And I think it needs to be understood that we need to sort of lean into um, the discomfort that uh, the cultural journey brings with it, that, that we need to understand. What are some of the dynamics that we can bring together through different disciplines, through different functions, whether that's internal audit or um, compliance um, or legal, um, and what can those different perspectives bring to really understand it, uh, and, and get deeper insights into culture. But I think the, the notion that we expect culture to be absolute or to be, that we can perfectly capture culture, I think that's really the, the symptom of, of the problem that, that uh, we need to overcome.
0: And really, the only way this, I've ever seen this work is when, Miriam, like you said, you break it down into what's the specific issue you're trying to understand or address. Um, if you just go fishing for what are the cultural dynamics, it's too big a beast. And, you know, like you say, Katerina, it's too complex. But if you can hone in on specific teams or um, features of your organization that you want to understand better or optimize or, or you know, seek to, to use to avoid risks going forward, I think that's the only way it works, you know, breaking it down into those smaller chunks.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. And if I may add one more point to that, I think also there are already a lot of insights that we can take from scientific research and where we can be sure about there are certain topics um, that we should focus on and that we should measure, Um, whether that is in diversity and inclusion or whether that is speak-up culture. I think there are a lot of insights where we can be quite certain about that we can already start measuring that go beyond perception Um, But that we are quite reluctant to look into because I think some of those insights might be hurtful um, and might also not be um, so popular to to report back to regulators as well or supervisors. Um, And I think it takes a lot of courage to go down that path and maybe engage with uh, some of those uh, topics that we could measure potentially, but we are not, not, not doing right now.
0: You really have to be willing to create a safe zone, too, as you suggest. To take out the judgment from the findings to understand that sometimes a culture exists not because uh, somebody wants it to be that way or that was the goal Uh, and sometimes decisions are made completely based on you know unconscious um, motivations that people aren't even aware of but the idea that we are afraid to look to see what the reality is is really scary uh, because it's going to lead to continued decision problematic decision-making And I think you're exactly right that sometimes people are afraid to look uh, either because of their fear of what people will think of the data and how people will respond to it, but in particular how regulators will respond to it. And we get real competing messages from regulators because regulators say you have to find a way to make sure your program works and to make sure you're doing the right thing. Um, But at the same time, of course, they can sometimes be concerned about some of these findings. And I think we need some encouragement that people should feel safe to look at some of these uh, potential cultural issues uh, and and be protected in doing so. I think that's
2: right. I think there is a concern that the sort of focus on individuals can lead to an overly defensive approach to decision-making and sort of receiving messages. But it would be good to have the regulators acknowledge and support having those conversations. Um, on the one hand, they're saying, you know, culture is a priority, you've got to have these these discussions, you've got to sort of address it. But at the same time, r- recognising that people might
1: be apprehensive about doing that because of the individual accountability issue. I think one of the questions would be, to this point of culture is, is a priority, to go back to the specifics, what is the element of the culture that is a priority for your industry and, in particular, your organisation? So, for example, in life sciences context, you know, historically, uh, a lot of issues around um, marketing to healthcare professionals. In the financial services sector, you know, perhaps excessive risk-taking. In... Um, in one of the clients that I, I talked about, this issue that they had their own sort of quasi government organization, this excessive deference to authority. So, to hone in on the element of the culture that's really important to drive the right behaviors for a particular company and to, to get the conversation to be specific around that. And that's relevant to whether or not it will be acted upon. Be it uncomfortable or not, because you can always come back and say, well, there's a reason why we're looking at this. We're underperforming as a business or we're having regulatory issues. So it makes it uh, less likely that, it, that that people will step away from it because it's focused on a specific problem. I think that the challenge with with, um, with all of this is how do you make sure that you've got a methodology in place that is robust? So this this methodology of having gathering qualitative information at a scale, I think it's a is a credible one because the scale makes it makes it credible from a statistical perspective and the and the qualitative information the stories mean that each number is backed up by an actual employee experience, and that's where I've seen it sort of seen it be effective, but it needs to be rooted on an actual problem that the organization is facing, otherwise it
0: becomes a sort
1: of theoretical
0: conversation I think in some ways that's the easiest route in because I think you learn the most about your culture when you're focused in where something went wrong. Um, But there there are broader positive applications too. And it's potentially that link in that gives it that
3: sense of nervousness. Yeah, this completely resonates uh, with me, Melissa, because I think this downward risk of culture um, and then embedding this into our Um, internal audit processes or early warning signals. Um, I think that's just one lens to look at it. What are some of the positive uh, correlations we see with culture? And I think those are, um, you know, that talent feels attracted uh, to a culture uh, that is working well, um, that the people are more engaged, they're more productive, they're more innovative, which also relates to your point um, with agile ways of working that you have mentioned um, that I think is quite fascinating that we can see that culture seems to be an interconnected um, space that can help some of those um, yeah elements to move forward. And I just would love to make one provocative thought that given that we are current in the COVID-19 crisis, um, also it's kind of an invitation to maybe challenge our taken-for-granted views around ethics and culture because this could really be a moment also for reflection um, and, and lets us think about how we operate as a business and also makes executives think about um, what's, my, um, what's my perspective in business and society, how does this relate to how I want to um, operate as an organization, and I think... This is really right now also a time in which we can um, think about those um, issues really, really deeply and also understand how culture can, can be a significant driver in this discussion um, of interconnecting business and society and how they relate to each other and how we want to operate um, in this world and, and with some of the bigger questions that we face.
0: I completely agree with that. I, now is the time because we also have the opportunity to think fresh about how we approach challenges within organizations and opportunities within organizations. So what better time to kind of reevaluate these issues uh, and, and really think about where we are and where we're trying to go.
3: I just wanted to agree, and I, I just wanted to, um, to add to this that I sometimes wonder how useful is it to talk about the business case of ethics in business when, in fact, business ethics is the currency in which we're dealing with around the world. I mean, integrity and uh, ethics um, and, in turn, culture is really what um, keeps us all together and what keeps our system uh, together overall in a global business environment. And I think sometimes it's quite dangerous uh, to also talk about the business case of ethics because, when, in fact, when we are in the crisis now, um, I wonder If this is not really the the only thing that keeps us together, given that um, culture at the end of the day is about people, it's about um, the trust that we build with each other um, around the world. Um, So I just wanted to throw that in here. I I think the,
0: the challenge in so many organizations is that culture is mixed in, culture and ethics are mixed in with compliance and compliance is thought of as a separate entity or a separate being from the business. And so there's always this thought, right, about how do we integrate the two and how do we make sure they work together. And I think that separation between the two is highly problematic anyway, and I think that's what you're really drawing on is these are one and the same, and we need to figure out how to address them together. Uh, And it's unfortunate that I think we do have to call out this reality that that I think not for bad intent, but in reality, just the way compliance programs have sometimes been built up, it takes more work than it probably should to make sure that it's one voice that we're speaking from.
2: I think that's so true. And I think the point about the business case for ethics is being so clearly evidenced in what we're experiencing right now, particularly when you see the way in which Company decisions are being reviewed in the media, and the reaction to them, and the the reputation associated by that. You know, the 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 firms that have had offshore bases that are now seeking government funding, the football clubs that are sort of known for being immensely rich. Uh, also seeking sort of government support for furlough. On a simple basis, I think good ethics should and can lead to to good business.
0: And this is such a a huge opportunity for recalibration around that. And and a unique point in time where every business is facing ethical questions and dilemmas every day. You know, how do we protect our employees? How do we ensure we continue to provide products to the market, particularly some of those that are critical now? Um, healthcare, food, um, emergency services, utilities. How, how do you? How do they maintain all of those services, you know, through this time and protect their people? Um, I know a lot of the organizations across the pharmaceutical, medical device, healthcare sector are trying to do everything they can to accelerate um, new treatments, um, materials, products into the market but are also getting a lot of demands from state governments. So how do they grapple with that? How do they manage stock and how do they decide where they distribute um, potentially life-saving products? So, I, you know, I think there's a lot of ethical questions that businesses are facing, all businesses are facing now at the same time. And, you know, linking up, Miriam, what you were talking about in terms of these stories and getting a sense of how people are reacting and and the tone that leadership can set. I I know there's a lot of COVID-19 crisis task force and it's represented by people across all of the functions. And what I've not heard a lot of from these groups is, is really the inclusion of, or the thinking about culture. So they spend a lot of time thinking about the communication they're going to put out to their people Um, but not a lot of time getting feedback from their people on how they receive that and then learning from that in terms of the implications that might have for future decisions. So I I think there's a real interesting opportunity to, in a very simple way, start building in some of this cultural theory and feedback loops um, to help them make more informed decisions.
3: Yeah, 100% agree, Melissa. Um, Also, I was just reading the um, Edelman Trust Barometer, um, and they were um, doing a quite interesting um, survey around who are the most trusted spokespeople. And what's quite fascinating about this is that the CEO of my employer is at 54%. Um, of, of what people expect to be the ones um, to, to guide them through the crisis with narratives and, and being quite active um, in, in, how, um, in how we should respond in the crisis. And I think this opens up this opportunity to what you just said and, and also what um, uh, Amanda and Rosemary said earlier, this tone from the top with uh, how you can, can use culture in this crisis to navigate through um, I think there is really uh, an untapped potential for organizations um, that probably most of us um, are hoping for. and so so maybe that's that's an indicator for for things um, to to pick up in that regard. I know I definitely
0: draw conclusions and make assumptions about organizations based upon what I'm hearing their leaders say. Um, whether that's consistent with what other people interpret, I have no idea, but that there's a lot of power in the language they choose and what they talk about. And the actions that they're taking, not just for their businesses,
1: but for the broader communities.
0: Internal and external reactions, right? And and what the impact Mm -hmm. that's having.
1: And I think for organizations, it's really important to be cognizant that what we all do, what our organizations collectively do right now determines whether or not all the value statements mission statements all of that stuff is worth the paper that is written on it's at this time that the rubber hits the road and the actions will will determine actually what does this organization do as opposed to what it says it will do and I think that's why some some organizations are really standing out um, as opposed to others.
0: On that note, we'll wrap up part two of our three-part discussion with Melissa, Miriam, and Katerina from EY. Please stay tuned for part three, where we will discuss remediation and its most important aspect, finding the root cause of the behavior. We'd like to once again thank our listeners. We appreciate you tuning into our Culture and Compliance Chronicles podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ropesgray gray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discussed, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.